for everything under the heavens. There is a time, there is a season, a time to cry and to laugh, a season to mourn and to dance, for every sunrise gets met with its own sunset. But what is life but a series of valleys and mountain peaks? It's in these ever-changing seasons where God's voice is found. He speaks at those times of immense loneliness, where there's no peace to miss our brokenness. Standing in icy isolation, the winter wind keeps us frozen in our frustration. Wondering if we have ever been forsaken. Green leaves have long left each branch. The barren tree appears cold and it stands. However, this is just a season, a phase of life. Hope is still alive. Good morning. I want to welcome all you guys. If you're a guest, uh, like always, we're very humbled to have you hang out with us. If you're watching online or television, thank you so much for being a part. I told you um, last week, well, before I say that, I just wanted to mention, um, you know, so many times when we baptize after the service or at the beach, because we have a, a plethora of services, you know, Stephanie and I... Um, can't always be there and be involved and of course we're always trying to equip and raise up folks to do the work of the ministry and uh, but this weekend it truly is an honor for us to get to be a part and um, uh, be involved in taking that next step so uh, as Tyler said if you haven't done that I encourage you to and uh, we would love to get to be a part of that Last week, I mentioned that you had to be here this weekend because we're getting prepared for our fall kickoff. And it's always a big deal, and it's important that you invite and invite and invite and invite folks because God can radically change their life. And we're going to have fun. We're going to go on a space odyssey, and we're going to look at, I got my NASA shirt on in preparation. Uh, we're going to use the, the Apollo missions as a tool uh, to, to study God's Word. So it's going to be a lot, a lot of fun. And in order to, to, to prepare for that, one of the things we're doing is if you'll pull out this little card that's there in your program, we pull it out, it says, To the Moon and Back. All right, everybody's got one. If you don't, if you just raise your hand, our ushers would be glad to give you one, whether you're in the balcony here on the floor or you can go to the app, okay? But you want to have one of these because here's what we're going to do. Is in a moment... I'm going to ask, or not in a moment, I'm asking you now, if you would, to write down your name and the three or four people you're going to invite to be a part of that first weekend of Space Odyssey 2016. And then this week, we're going to take a picture of your card, okay, or the, uh, the, the, the uh, I don't know what you would call it, that you fill out on the app and send in. We're going to take a picture of that. We're going to put it on a thumb drive. And then we're going to send it to space. 
all right? I'm not going to actually get, you know, all the way to the moon. We're going to get to the stratosphere. We're going to send it to space with the video camera. It's going to come back, and we're going to watch, you know, find out once and all if the earth is flat or if it's round. We're going to maybe see an alien or two on its way up. Uh, I don't know what will happen, but uh, we'll be able to see uh, your uh, name, what you write on this card, up there in space. Now, we're not doing that because, you know, it gets the people you're inviting closer to God. We're just doing it for fun, all right? And so I encourage you, fill it out, put your name, put the folks you're inviting. Maybe it's a way of just even making a personal commitment, but this week we're going to take pictures, we're going to put it on a thumb drive, and then this big weather balloon is going to take it like 60 to 70,000 feet in the air. And it's going to video the thumb drive as it goes up that far and video Earth and space. And, and then when the air pressure gets uh, too great, the balloon pops. And when it pops, the parachute opens up and it comes down to planet Earth. And we run over there to get the video, or we swim over there if it lands in the ocean. And we get the video footage. And then next week we're going to show you a little bit about your journey to space. All right, so fill this out. You can drop it in the basket. You can put it uh, in the lobby, or you can grab the app and fill it out. But write down your name and the name of the folks you're going to invite. Sound good? Mm, you guys are... We got 30 more minutes of this. All right. Um, the, uh, I told, uh, the other thing I mentioned last week is I wanted to talk about hope, of course, and I want to talk about hope for our relationships. And as I was preparing this week, I thought, everything I'm going to say to you about hope, I'm going to take from God's Word, because I believe it to be true. But if you don't believe it to be true, then it's really of little help to you. And, um, or it has no power in your life, I might say it like that. No reason for you to obey it or to interact with it. And so I want to take two weeks to talk about hope in our relationships, our marriage, uh, maybe with our child. But this week what I want to do is I want to give you some reason. The Bible says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Faith is not just something you feel. Faith is something that you know. It's reasonable. It is logical. There are proofs for faith. So what I want to do is to give you um, some arguments for Scripture being what the Bible says that it is and give you some proofs for the resurrection literally taking place and some proofs for or arguments for the existence of God. And the way we're doing it this weekend is because, you know, there's just not enough time. So last night I talked about how is the Bible reliable? Can you trust the Bible? Is it a historical document? And of course, if you weren't here last night, I encourage you to go online and uh, you can go to our webpage and of course you can watch it there for free. But uh, there's more historical evidence for the Bible than any book of antiquity, okay? So just, 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 just know that. There are more manuscripts uh, for the Bible than any book. There are, uh, the second is like got uh, 750 manuscripts. There are 25,000 manuscripts for the Bible. The, it, the evidence for the Bible is incredible. 
And if you've never investigated, I encourage you to do so. Don't just say, I don't believe it, or it sounds incredible. You know, I, you got a lot riding on this to just say something. And can I tell you, when you investigate, the internet may not be the first place you want to go. Everything on the internet is not necessarily true. You also need to know that when it comes to the scripture, is that there are 66 books in the Bible. They are written by different people, they are written at different times, and they are written for different reasons. And you need to be very, very careful of just because you disagree with one aspect or one part, throwing all of it away. Just because you don't believe that the world was created in six days, the way Genesis talks about, is not, it's not logical, therefore, to throw away what the New Testament has to say about the resurrection. They were written by different people, they were written at different times, and there's different evidence, uh, historical evidence for their reliability and their trustworthiness. So be careful of that, because it's real easy to just throw it away. So uh, let's um, just kind of jump into this, because the Bible says we need to do this. The Bible says that we need to have a reason for what we believe and why we believe it. Let me show you in Peter. It says, and this is, I put the whole scripture there in your outline if you want to pull it out, but here's what it says at the last part of verse 15. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, now that infers that you should have hope as a believer. You ought to have hope. In other words, no matter what's going on in the world, you should have hope in your finances, hope in your marriage, hope in your health. There ought to be something about you and me as a believer that the world looks at us and says, I want what you got. How do you get it? What is it? I don't understand it. Or maybe they even challenge it. Can't be real. There's no way you can have hope. The scripture says, if someone asks you about the hope as a believer, always be ready to do what? What's it say? Yeah, explain it. Now, you need to understand something about the Bible. Unlike any other religious book, the Bible always asks you to investigate. It always asks you to look in and see if we are not telling you truth. The writers of the New Testament specifically, over and over again, say you need to investigate, you need to think about this, you need to look into this, you need to find out whether or not it's true. The Bible is not afraid or fearful of investigation, okay? So, Peter tells us that we need, you know, we need to have an answer. Well, Paul tells us how we need to give that answer. Look at what he says. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to who? What, what, what's it say? Everyone, all right? Everyone. Be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. How many of you know a difficult person? Okay? Maybe you're sitting by them, all right? And difficult people, and a lot of times in your faith, you'll be challenged at Starbucks, you'll be challenged at work, you'll be challenged in line at Walmart or the grocery store. And he says you need to be ready to give an answer, and you need to be patient. They're not necessarily going to come to you with kindness, but you need to respond in kindness. Why? He says, gently instruct those who oppose the truth, 
Perhaps God will change those people's hearts. Now remember this, it's not your responsibility to change somebody's heart, so don't carry that responsibility. Don't carry that weight. Some of us are afraid to have discussions because we're afraid there's something we don't know or that we'll mess up and we'll ruin someone's life. God's the one that changes hearts. He's the only one that can do that, so you don't need to own that. He says, and as a result of your willingness to have the conversation, knowing what you believe and why you believe it, they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape the devil's trap, for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Sounds a lot like Romans that we read last week, that they suppress the truth. Or it sounds like what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, where he says, the God of this world has blinded their minds. Now, some good news for you is in Romans chapter 1, it says this, they, who's they? Humankind, know the truth about God. But they do what? They suppress. They try to push it into a suitcase. So there's nobody you're going to talk to, no matter how atheistic they may claim to be, that doesn't know the truth according to the Scripture. And um, Romans 1 says that they know the truth because of the creation around them. And um, the, the arguments for the existence of God as a result of creation um, are um, interesting and powerful. But Romans 2 says that mankind knows the existence of God or they know the truth because of their conscience. I didn't put it in your outline, but look at what Paul said in Romans 2. He says, even the Gentiles who do not have God's written law, in other words, they don't have the Bible, the Gentiles, those who are not Jews, they show that they know the Bible or the law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate God, that God's law is written where? On their hearts. Even though they don't have it in their hand, they have it in their hearts. For their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. And so there is a moral argument that is often given for uh, one of the proofs of God's, uh, of God's existence. So you don't have to carry that. Now, what I want to do is I just want to give you hopefully something to make you think so that you will investigate. We cannot, in the next few moments, you know, give you all the different reasons for the reliability of the resurrection, but what we can do is give you some things to think about. Now, it's important to know that a reasonable faith is not knowing with certainty, right? You can't know anything for certain. It's kind of like this week, I'm going to Dallas, I'm going to get on an airplane, and I can't know for certain that I'm going to land in Dallas and not crash somewhere along the line. We don't make decisions based only on that uh, knowing uh, for certain, right? We make decisions based on probability. The reason I'm going to get on that airplane is not because I know, but I'm going to get on that airplane because it is probable that it will land safely in Dallas. When you investigate the safety records, when you investigate the number of accidents, when you investigate the knowledge of the pilots, and you then make a decision not on what you know to be certain, but on what you know to be probable. And so when it comes to the proof of the Bible or of God or the resurrection, it's important to know I cannot prove to you for certain that Jesus resurrected from the dead. That is an impossibility since you, neither you nor I saw it. 
But what I want to do is give you some things to think about so that it is probable that he resurrected from the dead, that it is the most likely answer for the questions we have concerning the facts that we know. Now, I understand that some folks will go into the conversation with the idea that there is no way in which Jesus resurrected from the dead because that would be miraculous and the miraculous doesn't happen. Miracles do not happen. There is the natural uh, way and that is all there is. And I would again challenge you to investigate, to make sure that what you say you believe you uh, have investigated. You have looked at both sides. You have looked at the arguments because you have a lot riding on this. For example, one of the scholars who did that very thing was a gentleman by Craig Keener. He wrote two volumes on the miraculous, on miracles, and he wanted to discover the best that he could by investigating, do they happen? And so he went back and he looked through history of what the claims were, what the evidence was, the people that were involved. But then he goes all the way, the reason there are two volumes, is it's the most exhaustive uh, scholarly investigation of the miraculous. He goes all the way uh, to modern day and the thousands of miracles that are claimed. And he investigates and he talks to the eyewitnesses and he looks at the doctor's reports and all of those things. And I only say that to challenge you that if you dis disqualify the miraculous, have you investigated it? Or have you just determined in your godhood that it does not exist? And uh, you got a lot riding on this. I mean, you will die just like I will. And I want to be sure of what I believe and why, um, why I believe it. Josh McDowell said this. He says, after more than 700 hours of studying this subject and thoroughly investigating its foundation, I've come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever fostered upon the minds of men, or it is the most fantastic fact of history. Paul, when talking about the resurrection, said this, all right, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, and if Christ has not been risen, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. In the case of all who have died believing in Christ are lost in that case. If, and Paul, what Paul's saying is if the resurrection is not true, then the Christian faith has no power. It, it has no hope, no help. He says, and if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we're the most pitied, we're to be more pitied than anyone in the world. That, that's in, that's, this is important. Whether or not Jesus literally rose from the dead, all of Christianity rests upon whether that is true or whether that is false. And Paul says that if it is false, then we ought to be the most pitied people in the world because we are still responsible for our sin. But then Paul goes on to say, but in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Now we're gonna investigate the resurrection. There are uh, sources Josephus being a Jewish scholar outside of the Bible that talk about Christ. They talk about the resurrection, but we are going to primarily look at the Bible. 
And you say, well, Troy, I, you know, I don't believe the Bible. I encourage you to investigate and wrestle with what I shared last night. But you do need to know this, that scholars on both sides of the issue, those who are atheists and those who believe there are God, know that there are and have declared there is more historical evidence for the life of Christ than there is for Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar. In other words, we know that Jesus was born and walked upon planet Earth. Now, of course, they do not all agree upon whether or not he is the Son of God. But to disqualify the fact that there was ever historical Jesus is just to be in opposition to all the scholarly study on both sides of the issue that has been done. And so the Gospels are a reliable um, historical account of what happened. Now, whether you believe what they believe is something entirely different. But what they reported, we, um, we can trust uh, as any historical book from antiquity. Now, the resurrection answers three questions. The first question it answers is, does God exist? All right? Because only God could lay down his life and take up his life. If Jesus resurrected from the dead, then he is God. So it answers the question, does God exist? The second question that it answers, and as you know, in your outline, I'm sorry I didn't tell you, you kind of have to, the first part is the, our, the argument for the reliability of the Bible. The second part is the resurrection. <clears throat> the second question that it answers is which faith is true? Now, the uniqueness of Christianity is that the proof for its trustworthiness is the resurrection. That's what the New Testament says. See, the, the Christianity makes um, statements that other religions don't make. You can go to Muhammad's grave, and Muhammad will be there. He never claimed that he, one, was God, or that he would resurrect from the dead. And the same is true for Buddha. Only Christianity, where Jesus declares himself to be God, and that he would prove he was God by the mere fact that he would rise from the dead. And so there is a uniqueness to the claims of Christianity. And if Jesus did that by which he uh, said that he would, he rose from the dead, then Christianity uh, is um, the one true faith. I, I, you know, just a little side note here, that as we were talking yesterday about the Bible, when it, you know, we hear a lot about Islam, we hear a lot about uh, the Muslim faith. Did you know that Muslims are told in the Quran when they have a question about their book, when they have a question about the Quran, they have a question about God, they don't understand their faith. Do you know where they're supposed to go to get their answers according to their own um, religious sources? Do you know uh, the Quran? Do you know where they're supposed to go? They're supposed to go to the people of the book. You know who that is? That's the Jews and that's the Christians. So in reality, their Quran tells them that if they don't understand their faith, they're actually supposed to go to you and ask you. But when's the last time you had a Muslim ask you about their faith? And the reason they don't is because they believe the Bible in which you hold is corrupt. Okay? They don't believe that what you have is what Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John actually said. And I believe they're wrong and that there's lots of proof for that. If you want to know what it is, Go to our site and see what we talked about last night. And then thirdly, it answers the question, is there life after death? Paul said that because Jesus is resurrected from the dead, that 
you and I don't have to be afraid. Now, here's what we know. Now, we, we know a lot more, but we only have time to talk about a few of these so that you can decide whether or not you believe that the resurrection is probable or at least worth investigation. Number one, Jesus died by crucifixion. Again, I told you there's more historical evidence for Christ than Peter the Great nor Julius Caesar. And the reason this is important is, again, because our Muslim friends don't believe that Jesus died on the cross. There are other theories. We'll talk about those. But they don't believe that he died on the cross. So it's important to know that Jesus died on the cross. There is historical evidence. And... Again, scholars on both sides of the issue of whether Jesus was God would tell you that Jesus walked planet Earth and he died by Roman order on a cross or crucifixion. Now, it's, you know, what, when you think about what happened, okay, because one of the theories often uh, shared by those of Islam is the swoon theory. It's the idea that Jesus didn't die on the cross, he fainted. And later he came, kind of came out of his coma. The disciples doctored him back to health, and then he showed himself as if he were resurrected. But in order to believe that, you have to go back and you got to think about it. Now, what did the resurrection entail? Or excuse me, the crucifixion entail? I mean, in other words, what, what what happened? Well, when someone was determined to be crucified, the first thing that they would happen to them is they'd be scourged. In other words, they would be stripped of all their clothing. They would take their hands, they would tie them to, uh, more times than not, a, a big pole. And so they would kind of be stretched out, okay? Their hands are up here, and their body uh, from the neck to the ankles would be scourged. And what they would use is a cat of nine tails, is what they called it. It was a leather whip with many uh, strands. And some of those strands, there would be uh, stone, and in some of those strands, there would be pieces of sharpened bone. There would be either two Roman soldiers or one Roman soldier that would stand on this side for a time and then move to the other side so that the body from the neck to the ankles could all be scourged. Now, medical doctors tell us that what would happen when the Romans did this, and I might also say this, is that Roman law said that you could only be hit 39 times. But the Bible talks about how uh, much... Uh, furious, furious the Romans were because Jesus claimed to be God. He, he, he said he was king, all these things. And so they had an anger and a desire to mock his weakness. So there's, uh, in all likelihood, he may have been hit more than 39 times. But what would happen is they would take that cat and tails and they would, you know, bring it down upon the back of Jesus. And it would beat, right? It would cause contusions when the rock would hit, but then the pieces of bone would tear into and start to fillet the skin. It would start with the outside, right, layer of skin, but as that Roman soldier continued to hit, and depending on what kind of energy or what kind, with what kind of strength that he would bring that cat of nine tails down upon the back or the legs or the thighs, of the individual to determine how deep those bones would go. And again, physicians tell us that after being hit just a few times, the skin would be opened up and then the bone would begin to take pieces of the muscle, the sinew, 
the, the, those things that connect the bones and the muscle. And if there was uh, much, uh, a, a lot of uh, anger, a lot of energy brought into their whip, it would literally begin to reveal the bone. They say that when someone was scourged, before they ever went to the cross, they would be half dead. And that was the point of it. It was to weaken them. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. And when you read about all the details, when you take a doctor's report of what actually happened to the body of Christ, um, I have one of those reports here, and I, and I can't read that without, without tears um, to think about what, uh, according to my belief, he willingly did as God. Uh, it, once he was scourged, they took Jesus uh, and they put a, uh, you know, a robe upon him. And they put a crown of thorns. Now, we don't know what you know, thorn bush they used. The Bible doesn't tell us. But there are some thorns uh, in that area that are like an inch and a quarter. And it was pushed down on his head, not laid lightly, but pushed down to where those thorns penetrated, of course, his, his brow. He was at this time made fun of, he was mocked, he was laughed, he was given the cross, probably the cross beam, the cross would have weighed over 300 pounds to carry to where he was going to be uh, crucified. And you can imagine upon his raw back just the agony of that cross beam. It was one of the most humiliating deaths. The Romans were very good at this. As you walk through the street, uh, half dead because of the scourging, completely uh, without clothing in front of all those, and especially for Jesus who claimed to be God. Once they got Jesus to the place in which they were going to crucify him, they laid him down on the cross, and they nailed both his hands and his feet. Now, medical scientists tell us that it probably wasn't through the palm. It was more likely, and some of the skeletons that they found uh, who were crucified were through the wrist, through this area right here, because if you were crucified in the palm, you know, it, it would tear, it would rip out, and they wanted to keep you, of course, on the cross, so more than likely it was here through the wrist, and I, I don't know if you've ever kind of hit that funny bone that's there in your wrist, but you can imagine um, just the agony uh, of that shooting pain down, um, down your arm. They would then nail the feet. Sometimes they would tie the arms um, uh, up on the cross as well as nailing them. Now, most people who died, died, you know, uh, either within three or four hours or three or four days, depending upon how much blood they lost, which was a result of scourging, and whether or not they could breathe. Because most people died on the cross from suff uh, they couldn't breathe, they suffocated. And, and because what would happen is when you're there on the cross and you're hanging, you can't get um, oxygen in and carbon dioxide out. And in order to do that, you would have to pull up on the nails and push up on the nails and take a deep breath and then sag down again. And, um, if the, and the Roman soldiers would stay there until you died because if you survived crucifixion, then they would be crucified. And nobody wanted that to happen. And one of the ways they would speed up crucifixion is that they would uh, break your legs just below your knees. And if you couldn't push yourself up, then you would just suffocate and you would die. Now, we know that um, uh, when it came to Jesus in the New Testament in John chapter 19, 
John reports this. He says, so the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the two men that were crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus was already dead, and sometimes there's the question, well, why, you know, why did he die so quickly? And when they put the spear, John says that blood and water came out. And for uh, a long period of time, there was, you know, well, what, what is this about? You even have early church fathers trying to find symbolic meaning in the water and in the blood. But again, <clears throat> medical, uh, pro the medical profession has illuminated that scripture in that we know that around the heart is a, a, a liquid form, a pericardium. And what they believe is that when the spear went into the side of Christ, that it pierced that as well as, of course, the heart. And that liquid came out along with the blood. Now, here's what's interesting. James writes down something that he didn't know. In other words, there's, there's no way that James knew what the scientific community in that day did not know. And therefore, write it down as a way of convincing you and me that the crucifixion actually happened. The most likely answer, the probable cause for John to write down that he saw both blood and water is because he saw it. Because it wasn't until much later that we discovered the pericardium had that liquid. So that's an interesting fact. Jesus died on the cross. It's his, there's historical evidence. We know that. Here's the next thing that we know. We know that there was an empty tomb. Now, we don't know, right, with, with uh, certainty that it's the result of resurrection, but what we do know is that Jesus was taken down off the cross. Normally, they would just sometimes leave him on the cross. They'd be destroyed by, you know, birds, uh, animals of prey. What we know, there was a Roman law that if the family wanted the body, they could get the body. Of course, they got Jesus' body. They put him in the tomb, and historically, we know that the tomb, three days later, was empty. <clears throat> there are proofs for that. The first proof or arguments at least. The first one is the witness. We're ladies. Now you got to remember, this is not 2016. This is A.D., you know, the early 30s, middle 30s, A.D. And women in that day did not have the same rights or respect that they have today. There was a Jewish uh, law that said that for every, in a court of law, if you had one man saying this, you needed at least two women to, you know, equal the same validity. So if you had one man, you needed at least three or four women to declare, you know, that what this person was saying was not true. Women were not respected. They were thought of as property. They were not thought of as trustworthy. They were not thought of as someone that uh, you could trust to tell or to know the truth, okay? So it was a completely different world. Now, what's incredible is that who does, who do the gospel writers say Jesus trusted with the most important truth of the Christian faith. Women. Right? I mean, women. He, he, I mean, think about this. If the gospel writers were trying to convince the world of something they knew was a lie, the last people in the world they would have had being the first people to go to the tomb and to get the words from the angel would be women. 
because women weren't believed. Women weren't trustworthy sources. So if they were making it up, in all likelihood, they would have been the ones who found the empty tomb. They would have been the ones that the angels spoke to. But that's not what we find in the New Testament writers. If the men would have uh, just been writing a lie, I mean, can you imagine how men would have wrote this? They came to the tomb and they comforted the women. They rolled away the stone with their big, mighty muscles, helping God. They picked up Christ. I mean, it would have been written completely different. So one of the reasons that we believe that the tomb was empty is because who the gospel writers claim have that evidence. The second thing is that the apostles were preaching in Jerusalem within weeks. Now again, think about this. If you're making up a lie, and if Jesus is still in that tomb... But you're going to start a new religion. Where are you going to go to start that religion? You're going to go anywhere in the world other than where the crucifixion and your proclamation of the resurrection actually took place. Because if you proclaim that the tomb is empty, where the tomb is, and if it's not empty, somebody's just going to say, hey, it's right over here. Hey, right here's the body. Hey, right here, right within weeks, these men are preaching in Jerusalem, which is where the crucifixion took place, and it's where they proclaimed that the resurrection happened. That is incredible evidence that what they're saying, they um, believe. What they're saying about the empty tomb, nobody could contradict. They said the tomb was empty. Now, they could contradict whether or not the tomb was empty because Jesus resurrected. And the Jews did. We're going to see that in a minute. But what they could not contradict is that the tomb was empty. All right? We're not, at, we're first of all saying, what do we know? We know Jesus died. And we also know that the tomb was empty. We know that it was empty because who the writers gave evidence uh, that at first evidence too. We also know it was empty because within weeks they were preaching in Jerusalem and no one contradicted their proclamation that the tomb was empty. The next thing I give you is then, therefore, the Jews' response. How did the Jews respond to the proclamation that the tomb was empty? They didn't say it wasn't. What did they say? Well, you see it in Matthew 28. As the women were there on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priest what had happened. You know, some, the body, it's gone. Verse 12. A meeting with the elders was called, and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, here's what you got to say. Jesus' disciples came during the night while you were sleeping, and they stole his body. Well, you know what the soldiers knew? That if they were to share that story, then they would be in really big trouble for sleeping while they were supposed to be guarding. So the Jewish elders go on and say, if the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so you won't get in trouble. So the guards accepted the bribe and said what they were uh, told to say. The story spread wildly among the Jews, and they still tell it today. Now, here's what I want you to see, is that the Jews' response to the apostles' proclamation that the tomb was empty was not to say, no, it's not. What was their contradiction? You took it. They did not say the tomb was empty, and that's what we know. It was empty. Why do we know it was empty? Because when the apostles declared that it was empty, the very Jews who were part of Jesus being crucified did not say, no, it's not. Instead, they said, you took it. 
So in saying you took it, what were they declaring? It's empty. All right? It's empty. Now, we know that Jesus died. We know that the tomb was empty. But let me give you something else we know. We know the transformation of the apostles after the resurrection. The transformation of the apostles, or the apostles' transformation, as I put it in your outline. We know this. Again, historically, we know this. Before the resurrection, what were the apostles like? Well, we know, first of all, they didn't understand a lot that Jesus was doing. We know that they thought Jesus was going to set up his kingdom on earth. We know that they were distraught when Jesus died on the cross. We know that even after Peter, James, and John said that they saw Elijah and that they saw Moses and that they saw Jesus on the transfiguration, we know that even after saying they saw that, that when Jesus was in his greatest hour being tried um, for blasphemy, that Peter denied even knowing him once to a little girl. So we, the scripture even says in John chapter 20, that Sunday evening, that's after the crucifixion, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because why? They're afraid. So what do we know about these men? We know that before the crucifixion, they were confused, they were fearful, they often changed their mind, they had no problem turning their back. When they came to arrest Jesus, what did the apostles do? They ran and they hid. One of them, the Bible says, ran so quickly to get away that somebody grabbed his coat and he ran away naked. I mean, these are not the same men that we see after what they say was the resurrection. Therefore, there is proof that they saw something that transformed them. Because what were these men like after the resurrection? After what they said was the resurrection anyways. We know that they were no longer fearful. We know that when you read the historical account that's found in the book of Acts and even uh, sources outside of the Bible, we know that these men were willing to put their faith on the line. We know that they were beaten. We know that they were put in prison. We know that they, um, many of them died horrible deaths. Now, um, there are writings that they all died horrible deaths, but we, we can't historically prove that. But what we do know is that some of them did, were crucified, and that some of them were um, burned alive, and that some of them were, uh, you know, flayed. They were, they, they were killed in horrific ways. And we also know this historically, is that they died alone. The apostles did not all die together. In other words, there was a great change in the apostles and you can't deny that historically you can't say that it didn't happen because you can see what they were like before and you can see their confidence they not there's not one account of any of them renouncing their faith not one historical account of any of the apostles recanting their faith instead um they stand for it remember when they got arrested remember what Peter said, he says, you know what? If you got to kill us, kill us. But we have to share what we know. We have to share what we have seen. Now, again, remember, we're trying to say what, what's the most probable reason for them having this transformation. I, I think you'd have to agree that 
they saw something. There's something that happened. And you say, no, well, Troy, I mean, a lot of people die for what they, what they believe. Yes, you've got to understand, though, but liars are, not, are bad martyrs. And here's what I mean by this. When the gentleman flew in to the towers on 9-11, or the young man who went into the nightclub and took the lives of 50 people because of something they believed, they both, or they all believed something that was told to them or something that they read in a religious book. But they did not die because of something they saw and lied about. And that's what makes the apostles different. That if Jesus did not rise from the dead, they know they were lying when they said he did. And people do not die for what they know to be a lie. So if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, these men died horrific deaths for what they knew was not true. And you got to remember now, this Christianity we have in 2016 is not the Christianity we had, you know, in the early 90s to 120s when these men died. I mean, they didn't know that in the future we'd name our kids John and James and Peter. They didn't know that there would be this, you know, that Christianity, now they hoped that Christianity would take on uh, and impact the world, but they didn't know. They didn't have Bible bookstores and Christian radio stations. And listen, these men died poor. These men often died uh, completely alone. Christianity was a small sect of Judaism. This is the weird ones. All right? There was no benefit to the lie that they would have had to tell and be willing to die for if Jesus wouldn't have resurrected. Therefore, I believe that it is quite probable and most likely the best answer. But the reason for their transformation is that what they saw was, their re was the resurrection of Christ. Almost finished. The other thing we know is that skeptics declared to uh, a transformation or declared themselves to believe in Christ because of the resurrection. Skeptics were willing to die for the resurrection. Two of them. Let me give you real quick. One was James, the brother of Jesus. Again, if you read the New Testament, you know that the family of Christ thought that Jesus was delusional while he was alive. They didn't follow him. They didn't believe in him. And yet, after the resurrection, James becomes the leader, not just of any church, but the church in Jerusalem. Not just a Christian, a leader. One who was martyred and died a horrible death. Because he saw something. You can't deny it. He saw something. The other is Paul. At the time, he was Saul. And remember, one of the arguments is the swoon theory, as I shared. Another argument is the hallucinary. Uh, uh, somebody say that word for me. They hallucinated, all right? That they hallucinated. That the decide, because it happens today. You lose someone that you love, people have been known to hallucinate uh, and believe that they see the person who has died alive. But those hallucinations, there's that word, those hallucinations are like dreams. In other words, when you dream going to Disney World, you can't wake up your spouse and say, hey, dream with me and we'll save some money and go together, right? <laughs> They're the individual. But let's, let's even give 
the skeptic, the, the, that they all hallucinated. Can I tell you who did not have an, a hallucination? A skeptic. The last person in the world to want to see Jesus alive was Paul. Paul had traveled the world persecuting Christians. Paul had traveled the world putting Christians in prison and watching them die for what they believed. But look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 9, writing to the Corinthian church. He says, I pass on to you what was most important and what has also been passed on to me. Now, he's going to give them a creed. This is important. It's a little aside, but it's important. He's going to give them a creed. And the creed that he's going to give them What's a creed? A creed is something that has been said and shared and memorized over and over at other churches. So he's about to say, here's a creed that I have heard. Now, if he's going to say, I'm going to give you something I've been given, then it means that that creed was around for longer than the date in which he wrote this letter. He could not give a creed that didn't exist at the time in which he wrote the letter. Now, the reason that is important is because, that, um, again, scholars historians on both sides of the issue will tell you that this creed was around from a few months after what was said to be the resurrection or the crucifixion of Christ to maybe uh, for, for sure even the latest date would be less than a decade now here's why that's important is what I'm about to read to you was shared to, from church to church at a time when the people who saw the crucifixion and knew the truth were still alive. Okay? They were still alive. So look at what Paul says. Here's the creed. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scripture said. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. On the third day, just as the Scripture said, he was seen by Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. Most of them are still alive. Again, so why did Paul put that in there, or why did they put that in the creed? Because Christianity has always been not just a religion of the heart, but of the mind. The Christian faith is not afraid of investigation. It's not afraid of reason. It's not afraid of logic. He says there's, most of them are still alive. Go talk to them. Go see what they say. And then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, though I had not been born at the, at the wrong time, I saw him as well. I'm the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy of being called an apostle after the way I persecuted God. Why is all of this important? Because like I said at the beginning, if Jesus arose from the dead, then that means that he is God. And therefore, there are implications on your life. That's why people go to the end to just unlogical places to, dis, to deny the resurrection. I mean, what's the most probable reason for the fact that Jesus died, that the tomb was empty, that there was a transformation of the disciples, and that even skeptics had a transformation? I mean, what's the reason for all that? What's the most probable reason that those things happen? You have to have an answer for that. And the, fact, the idea that he swooned that he didn't really die, I just don't think it's logical. The other answer is that the disciples took his body. But again, what motive would they have? Go take his body so they could die a horrible death, poor and alone? I mean, what was their motive? Do you know how far some uh, folks will go? And I'm talking smart folks, scholars. 
is they have a theory known as the evil twin theory. That at the time in which Jesus died, there was another person walking through the town of Jerusalem that knew what Jesus said and knew that he looked like Jesus. So when Jesus died, he decided that he would declare himself to be the risen Christ. It's, just, it's not logical. What's the most probable reason? You have, you have to have an answer for that. And I would challenge all of us, if he rose from the dead, are we living as if that is true? Are you living like one as one of the apostles? I mean, think about it. Do you worry about all the things the world worries about, even though you declare that the risen Lord is King of kings and Lord of lords? I mean, do you do your marriage as if Jesus rose from the dead and is God? Or do you do your marriage the way you want to? How do you do your sex life? Do you do it the way God has laid it down in his word? If he rose from the dead, that matters because there are implications on your life. How about eternity? When you lay your head down at night, how do you know where you're going and if it exists and all of those things? Listen, if he rose from the dead, there are implications on your life, on my life. I better know what his word has to say because he's God. God. All-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere at one time, who stepped in to his creation and gave his life so that we could have eternity with him. And he gave us a book that he has watched over for thousands of years so that you would have the truth. And yet, we often live in contradiction to it. Why? Because you know better. Because I know better. I challenge you. Got a lot riding on this. At least investigate. At least spend some time looking through the evidence and seeing what's the truth. An honest exploration for the truth. Because you know, I put in your outline, I don't have time, I gotta shut up. But I put in your outline, this is so important because. The, the biblical writers say that just as he died and arose from the dead and ascended to heaven, he's coming back. He's coming back. And, and the Bible says when he comes back, he's not coming back as a suffering servant. He's not coming back to go to a cross. He's not coming back to be spit upon or laughed at that. The Bible says that when he comes back, he is coming back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. Would you bow your head? Father, I pray that your spirit would work in all of our lives and that we would have to do something with this truth. Help us not to just push it to the side, but help us to be willing to investigate. An honest exploration of truth. And God, I thank you that your word, your resurrection, even your existence is not just something that I know in my heart. It's something that I can even make sense of in my limited capacity with my mind. You didn't have to do any of that. And yet you expressed your love in so many ways. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Can you give God just a quick hand?